The reading is from John, chapter 20, verses 24 to 31, and can be found on page 3 of the service. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thank you, Caroline. That was brilliant. Um, and uh, thank all of you for being here on this, uh, on this lunchtime. Um, so John chapter 20 is full of evidence, but the evidence isn't everything. I became a Christian when I was very briefly in Singapore with my family at the age of 18. My mum was walking out, uh, working out there. And, and when I returned to Lancashire afterwards, the first people that I told about uh, coming to faith, my becoming a Christian, were my best mates, including one friend who I've now known for 42 years. So I am a committed nerd, a serial enthusiast. I was then and I am now. I'm obsessed, I still was, I was then with politics, music, space, football. So me coming home and telling my mates that I'd become a Christian was to a degree just another example of wacky Tim being wacky about something else. Only this was a bit more disturbing for my friends to handle. Disturbing because if Prefab Sprout did turn out to be the greatest band in all of the world, or indeed that Blackburn Rovers transpired to be actually the most awesome football team in the history of ever, these things wouldn't necessarily turn the world completely upside down. But if Jesus Christ is who he says he is in the Bible, then that absolutely changes absolutely everything. My friends got that, and it scared them. So 35 years after that, event, uh, this particular friend and I went out for dinner just a few weeks ago. We hadn't seen each other for a while, so we've got loads and loads to catch up on. But at one point, he tells me, out of nowhere, he says, I'm an atheist. And then within about 10 seconds, he adds, but I do believe that something happens to us after we die. I like to think we become part of something greater, something eternal. With respect, I told him, you're not an atheist then, are you? He shrugs and he protests. Well, how can anyone really know which religion is right? Isn't that just arrogant? I mean, maybe they're all a bit right. Which God do I follow? It's a common challenge. Maybe we've all come across it. Maybe we've even thought it. To which my response is this. If the resurrection happened, 
If the evidence here in John chapter 20 is true, then there is a God. There is a God, and we know his name. You can call off the search. We don't need to look any further. So John chapter 20 gives us some key evidence that the resurrection actually happened. And as I said, it also tells us that the evidence isn't everything. But first, the evidence. John 19 ends with Jesus' tortured, battered body being securely placed in a tomb close to the place where he had been crucified. In between Jesus' death and the events in chapter 20, the Passover had happened. It was now the first day of the week. It was Sunday. Mary Magdalene approaches the tomb very early, when it was still dark, the passage tells us, and she finds it empty. And she runs to get the disciples. Goodness knows what she thought. Peter and John, two of the disciples, rush in response to Mary bringing this news to them. They rush to see for themselves. Now, presumably, it's lighter now. They find the tomb empty also, and the grave clothes neatly folded. Now, wherever the body is now, it is not wearing its grave clothes anymore. Yet whoever moved that body took the trouble of unwinding those clothes, apparently calmly and carefully, then folding them tidily. Not really the actions of a grave robber, for instance. Reliable eyewitnesses are crucial if we're going to discriminate intelligently between fiction and fact. So who first discovered the empty tomb? Mary, Mary Magdalene. Who first raised the alarm? Mary. Who first saw the risen Jesus? Mary. So she's the key eyewitness. And you may have noticed, she's a woman. And we know that the testimony of women was disregarded in that culture. At best, a woman would need the corroboration of her husband to be even half taken seriously. But Mary Magdalene had no husband. In Luke's account, we see these events from a different perspective. Mary Magdalene is there, and also Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. It's subtle, but this is compelling, because if the resurrection was invented, either at the time or in the centuries that followed, if it never really happened, if the writers of the Gospels were frankly lying and wanted to persuade people to believe their lies, would they really have invented women as their key witnesses and the most prominent being a single woman in that culture? Not likely to put it mildly. The most plausible reason for Mary and the other women being written about as the first eyewitnesses is that they really were there. So that means the tomb was empty. So that means Jesus has risen. So that means death has been defeated. Mistaking the risen Jesus for the gardener, Mary just wants to know where Jesus' body is. She's distraught. It doesn't occur to her that he has risen, even though Jesus made it clear in advance that he would. It's only when Jesus calls her name that she sees. Now, if you're hearing this word now, and you are coming to see that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, rejoice, because that means he is calling your name too. That very evening, Jesus appears to the disciples. We read from chapter 20, verse 19, that the disciples were in a locked room for fear of the religious leaders. So you can picture them, can't you? Cowering in dread, terrified of what was about to come, what could happen to them. Could they also end up crucified? Yet this is 
after Mary has seen the risen Jesus and reported that news to the disciples, which of course strongly and sadly also implies that they didn't believe female eyewitness accounts either. Those things that Mary had told them after she had met the risen Jesus, the disciples mustn't have believed them, at least not fully. It also implies that the disciples were not expecting the resurrection to happen either. Even though, again, Jesus had made it clear in Mark 8.31 and elsewhere that he would rise again. Now, given that the human author of this account, John, is one of the disciples, one of those named, it's odd, isn't it, that he would make himself and his friends so be, uh, just appear so utterly and totally clueless, so slow on the uptake. Again, it's not the kind of thing you tend to make up. On seeing the risen Jesus, the disciples are emboldened, though. Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit upon them. The embers of the early church are beginning to roar into life. And yet we discover that one of the disciples is missing. Thomas. We, we don't discover why he was missing or where he was. But when the others tell him that they've seen Jesus, he's having I mean, absolutely none of it. Doesn't believe it. But we'll come back to that in a minute. Because the evidence isn't everything. When we consider John's account of the resurrection, we should remember that it's not meaningless, and it's not a one-off. I said earlier that I was a space nerd. Well, here we go. In 1977, an astronomer called Jerry Ehrman at the Ohio State University's Big Ear Telescope, it's a Big Ear Telescope, we're on the Big Eye Telescope, it's a radio telescope, listening from, to sounds from space. Well, he looked at the dot matrix printout from the work of this particular uh, night's uh, listening in 1977, and he found on that dot matrix printout uh, the numbers that showed the recording of a signal from the direction of the constellation Sagittarius. It had a sequence lasting 72 seconds and it showed an intensity 30 times higher than the normal background noise. When he saw those figures, Jerry Ehrman circled them in red pen and wrote WOW in the margin. That signal has become known as the WOW signal. There are many hypotheses as to what the WOW signal really was, but it is still today widely considered to be the strongest candidate so far for an extraterrestrial communication. And yet, it only happened once, for those 72 seconds in 1977. Despite scanning that part of the sky countless times since, there has been no repeat. We don't know what it was, or we don't know what, if anything, it even meant. Now, if all we had was John's account, it would still give us more evidence for the resurrection than the wow signal gives us for the existence of E.T. Because chapter 20 alone includes at least 12 individual eyewitnesses. But we don't just have John's account, do we? We've got those of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and indeed the accounts elsewhere in the New Testament, such as in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul writes of there being more than 500 eyewitnesses, and then he says, many of whom were still alive at the time of writing. That's just 20 years after these events. Again, unlike the wow signal, we do not have to guess the meaning. So as Caroline read at the end of that passage, John 20 and verses 30 and 31 are amongst the most important in the Bible, in my humble opinion. They tell us this, I'll repeat. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, 
but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Perhaps the rest of this chapter, the earlier uh, 29 verses of it, tell us the what and the when. These two verses tell us the why. Why was it written down? Now, I'm afraid you cannot, in my opinion, read those verses and conclude, then, that the New Testament is just an interesting collection of wisdom, teaching, and undemanding spirituality. Unlike the wow signal, the meaning is astonishingly clear. The intent is obvious. John tells us that all of this is written so that we will know that Jesus is God's promised saviour, that we can put our trust in him, and as a result, have life. A life we do not have if we do not trust in him. Those two verses at the end of chapter 20 basically tell us that either what we are reading is true, or it is a deliberate, incredibly cleverly confected hoax. I do not see a plausible middle way. John helps us with plenty of evidence. Here he is writing towards the end of a life of incredible discomfort, hardship and suffering and loss of liberty. He is likely to be the only disciple who was not killed, often in the most appalling and excruciating of ways, for the crime of maintaining that Jesus is the risen Christ. Now, who would subject themselves to that if they knew that what they proclaimed was a hoax or untrue? One lunatic? I guess, maybe. A dozen? Hundreds in the end. Come off it. I don't buy that. If you believe that, I kind of wish I had your faith. What an absolute leap in the dark. I don't think the evidence backed it up in the slightest. Now remember, on top of all that, that we have manuscript copies of all of the resurrection accounts in the Gospels and the Epistles dating from long before Rome became Christianised. That is massively important. Why? Because it means that we can be certain that these accounts were circulating, were believed, testified to, at a time when to do so was to put yourself at lethal risk. History is written by the winners, says Winston Churchill, implying that history is polished by those who have indeed filtered, by those who have the opportunity, status and power to do so. But when this history was written, who were the winners? Well, it certainly wasn't the Christians. It was mighty Rome, and to a lesser extent, the religious authorities. Not this despised, yet resilient, growing sect. If there were reliable, plausible, alternative accounts to why the tomb was empty, and if history is written by the winners, why didn't the winners leave us any evidence whatsoever? Where are those accounts? Where's the body? Where are the stories of the horrifically wounded Jesus who somehow swooned and yet survived the cross? Where's the evidence of those who are claimed as eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection, but who recanted under the threat of death? Where are they? The silence is utterly deafening. The evidence is overwhelming, but so often we don't want to hear it because the evidence isn't everything. Let's go back then to Thomas. He demanded evidence, didn't he? He said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. And Jesus lovingly, graciously gives him that very evidence. A week later, Jesus appears and offers to let Thomas touch those wounds. Thomas does not feel the need to take up the offer. 
he sinks to his knees and he cries or maybe whispers, my Lord and my God. The evidence matters because God knows that we doubt and so he provides us, like Thomas, with evidence to help us. John 20 and the rest of the New Testament documents, indeed the Old Testament if you look carefully enough, riddled, riddled with evidence. Jesus says to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The atheist Bertrand Russell once said that if it turned out that there was a God after all, and he had to face the one in whom he hadn't believed, his defence would be that there hadn't been given, he hadn't been given enough proof. But that's not true, is it? Because the evidence is plentiful, and yet the evidence isn't everything. How many miracles did Judas witness? How few are the 5,000 who Jesus miraculously fed, or the thousands who witnessed any number of his other astonishing signs, chose to follow him afterwards? How many more abandoned him and walked away? In the end, it's not the evidence that will save you. It's God's grace achieved via your surrender. When I doubt, when I sin, I need not to con myself that I do so because of a lack of evidence. I do so because of a lack of humility, a lack of preparedness to let God be God, to stop warring against him, living for me, rejecting his good rule. We say, show us the evidence, and God says, here it is. And then we see that the evidence was never our problem in the first place. It is that deep down, we just don't want to yield, don't want to surrender, don't want to let God be God. In Romans 1, verse 19, we read that what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For many, it's not that they are convinced that Christianity isn't true, it's that they don't want it to be true. Be honest with yourself, is that you? It has been me. I backslid in my 20s, early 30s for several years. In God's mercy, what brought me back was a realisation that my gradual decisions that led me not to live for Jesus were not because I thought Christianity wasn't true, but because I thought Christianity was inconvenient. To become a Christian is at the same time ego-shattering and liberating because it turns out that you are not the centre of the universe. Yet by turning to the one who is, we experience real freedom. You may say, I don't think I'm the centre of the universe, don't be silly, to which I gently ask you, what do you really think about God claiming all authority over your money, your time, your attitude towards justice, your opinions of and actions towards others, your relationships, the way you think about sex, your career, your future? We might not want to choose this language, but we are in effect determined to be, hell-bent, dare I say, on being God's enemy. But that's really good news. Because Romans 5, chapter 10 tells us that Christ died for us while we were still his enemies. But that by believing in him, we are, we can be reconciled. Poor Thomas gets called Doubting Thomas. And yet, he's a great example. And Christ's treatment of him with his weak faith at that time is an enormous encouragement. You see that it is not the strength of our faith that saves us. I could have enormous faith in Blackburn Rovers winning the Champions League. It is not going to happen. Instead, what matters is the strength of the object of our faith. That is what saves us. I may have tenuous, weak faith in Jesus Christ, and at times I really, really do, but the object of that faith is 100% powerful, 
100% certain. So I am 100% safe and sound, home and dry forever. And by believing in him, surrendering to him, so can you believe.